Welcome to the Redeeming Productivity Show. This is the podcast that helps Christians get more done and get it done like Christians. And I'm your host, Reagan Rose. Well, in today's episode, I'm going to be joined by Chris Martin, who is the author of the new book, Terms of Service, The Real Cost of Social Media. And we dive deep into the subject of social media, how it's affecting us, and how Christians should think about engaging online. I think you're really going to appreciate Chris's insights. But before we get into that, I want to tell you about two quick things. Are you a believer who struggles to manage your time well and stay organized? Well, come join the community of productivity-minded believers in Redeeming Productivity Academy. Members have access to new courses each month, monthly habit challenges, the Productivity Book Club, and live calls with me, plus much, much more. So if you're looking for that kick in the pants to really get on track for 2022, Redeeming Productivity Academy is the group for you. To learn more about Redeeming Productivity Academy and to sign up, just go to redeemingproductivity.com academy. That's redeemingproductivity.com academy. Also want to give a big shout out to the supporters of this show. I would not be able to keep creating Bible-based productivity content without the help of people like you. So thank you. And if you're getting value out of this show, my newsletter, videos, or other productivity resources, consider becoming a supporter of Redeeming Productivity. You can do so through giving a one-time or recurring donation at redeemingproductivity.com donation, or by joining the Redeeming Productivity Patreon at patreon.com redeemingprod. Thanks for listening, and thanks for your support. Now, let's get into the show. Welcome to the Redeeming Productivity Show. My name is Reagan Rose, and today I get to be joined by Chris Martin. He is a content marketing editor at Moody Publishers. He's the writer behind the awesome newsletter, Terms of Service, which looks at internet culture and social media trends from a Christian perspective. I'm a longtime reader of Chris's newsletter. I love his thoughtful analysis and insights, especially regarding how social media is affecting us which is also why I'm really looking forward to his new book, Terms of Service, The Real Cost of Social Media, which is out February 1st with B&H. Chris, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Reagan. It's great to be here. And I've long uh, paid attention to what you create and have seen what you uh, post on Twitter and otherwise, and I've heard just great things about you from other people even. So I'm really grateful to be on the podcast and uh, get to hang out with you. Well, it's great to have you. I've been wanting to connect with you for a while because, you know, our, our our worlds sort of overlap a little bit. Um, it's a subject that comes up a lot. And we're talking about personal productivity, mostly in terms of like distraction from social media. But it is uh, the Internet occupies a larger and larger part of our lives these days. So I'm, I am really looking forward to the book, um, but I'm kind of curious, maybe backing up a little bit. What got you interested in this topic of, of social media, internet culture, and how it's affecting us? I, man, it's, it's kind of funny. I have a really long and storied relationship with, uh, how do I put this? I guess the internet, but also just like the home computer to put it more broadly. So I, I should start way back at the beginning because it's really, it really like how I grew up impacts how I got here which isn't that surprising, but it's kind of weird. Um, my dad worked for IBM from before when I was born until I was graduating high school. And actually he started working from home roughly 1993, I think, uh, or even 92, 
back when like nobody was. In fact, we, it's kind of like a family heirloom treasure kind of thing. There's a local newspaper in my hometown in, I think around 1993, came to our house and took pictures of my dad at his home office desk and me like sitting on his lap while he was working or, or feigning work. And it was like, Joe Martin works from home, like about 1 million other Americans. And he has a, he has the landline dedicated to work phone calls so he can take work phone calls and not hog the family line. And his son, Christopher can sit on his lap while he, you know, works or whatever. And it's just really funny. It's very like, wow, how far things have come or changed or however you want to view that. Um, but he was doing it before it was cool, I guess you could say. And, um, and so I grew up with a dad working from home, a mom who uh, didn't work most of my young life and uh, just, just was around parenting us and taking care of us very well. And um, I could never really get in any trouble, which is good. But, um, but my dad worked for IBM. He didn't work for just any company. He worked for like the leading home computing company and, and like computing company uh, in the 1990s. And so like, I remember getting our Windows 95 machine before I was even in elementary school or like when I was starting elementary school. And so I remember playing like Sesame Street hide and seek on floppy disk or, you know, things like that. Um, and I remember using the phone line, dial up internet to get it on nickelodeon.com and play like a trading card game they had. Cause I was also playing Pokemon cards at the time when I was in third grade. And so it, I just remember being on the internet at a very early age, which like you think, oh yeah, that's not good. Which, but at the time it didn't feel that way. You know, at the time in the mid nineties, at least to me, the internet didn't feel like a dangerous place like it does for like a seven-year-old today, you know? It, sure, it surely was if you found certain nooks and crannies of it, but it didn't feel that way. There was still this sort of like mystical magic and optimism about it. At least that's how it felt. And uh, so I just always, ever since then, I've been interested in the internet and how we communicate. And I was always kind of an early adopter to social media platforms. Like I was early in on MySpace when we were in middle school. And I was one of the first people I know in my high school who hopped onto Facebook when they finally opened it up to people who weren't college students. And so I've just always been interested, interested in this stuff. When I was in high school, I was on the school newspaper and had like a tech column where I would talk about social media or or even like other tech stuff. Like I remember when I first reviewed the iPhone when it came out when I was in high school. So um, I've just always been interested in, I used to want to work in Silicon Valley. Uh, I decided not to do that for a few reasons, but got to college, decided ministry was, was what I thought the Lord was calling me to do, but was still really active in social media um, and, and like tinkering with stuff, experimenting with things. When I was in high school, going back a little bit, I was like, I helped run a blog of other Christian high schoolers. And we would like the five or six of us, you know, it'd be like, like TGC, if a bunch of high schoolers in the same town were writing on it, you know, it's like, we all kind of like took turns every day publishing our very wise 15 year old Christian insights on how to be a teenager as a Christian. And I actually, like got me a scholarship to school. It was the only way I was able to like pay for the school that I went to. So it's always been a big part of my life. Um, when I was at college, I started working for a marketing company, writing marketing blogs and managing social media accounts just because I knew how to do it. I had no degree, obviously. And so eventually got to Lifeway, spent seven years at Lifeway. It was a great place to work for my first job, especially. 
I advised some of their vice, my first job was advising some of their vice presidents on how to do social media uh, for the good of the organization. Uh, and then I coached authors on how to do social media because authors are very good at writing books or Bible studies, but that doesn't necessarily translate to the internet. And so I just tried to help a lot of authors learn how to use the internet for just to, to serve their audiences, to connect with their audiences. And then eventually when I was at LifeWay toward the end there around 2018 through 2020, I started leading like social media strategy within the organization. So I was focused a lot on like, how's the Facebook algorithm changing? What, how does our strategy need to change? Um, at the time we were closing bookstores. So how do we shutter 170 Facebook pages that came with all of these uh, Christian bookstores? How do we handle all that? So I was doing a lot of more like nuts and bolts strategy. But it was around that time, around 2016, when I started, I had been thinking a lot about social media strategy uh, and content strategy and how to do social media well from like, a, I guess, a marketing and communications perspective. But I had never really thought about like the, the philosophical underpinnings of social media. I hadn't really ever studied like what social media doing to us, how is it changing us? Um, I was not thinking critically about social media's effects on us as people, how we communicate with one another. Frankly, like how social media was used throughout the 2016 election season kind of perked my ears up to like, I think this is, I think this is like deeper than a lot of us realize that it is. Um, I read Neil Postman's Amusing Ourselves to Death for the first time around 20, early 2016, I think, which that book outside of scripture has been the most revolutionary book in my life. Um, if you don't know, Neil Postman is the media ecologist with New York University. He died in 2003. He wrote a number of books, some on education, some on technology, some on media throughout his life. 1985 is when he published Amusing Ourselves to Death. And it's more relevant today than it was in 1985 in my opinion, and he never talks about social media. He does have a really interesting chapter about televangelists, which is super good and interesting and I think applicable today. But I read that book and I was like, man, I really think there's a lot here that should affect how we think about our use of the social internet. And I was like, I don't really know if there are a lot of people writing about social media from a Christian perspective in this way, like in a sort of like Postman-esque way, where there are plenty of people who like write about the ethics of social media or like some of the regulation around social media. Like my friend, Jason Thacker, um, he's great. He and I have, have talked a lot about this stuff. Um, he works at the ERLC and does a lot of digital ethics kind of stuff with him. He's a lot more focused on like ethics and things like that. He's super smart. And that's a, that's an area of depth that I don't feel confident, you know, traversing. What I'm interested in very much so is like not necessarily what are the ethics behind a lot of these platforms, but how are they shaping us? How are they affecting us? How are they affecting broader culture? How is offline culture becoming sort of subservient to online culture? These are the sorts of questions that I try to ask. And I try to do my best Neil Postman imitation if Neil Postman were alive today and also a Christian. He's much smarter than I am. I claim no equality there, but I'm like, man, if Postman were alive today, and he were a Christian, how would he approach some of these technologies and some of these media platforms? And so that's what I try to embody as best I can. So that's a kind of a long story of like where we got to where we are, but, but I hope it's a little bit helpful for folks. No, that is super helpful. Yeah. I, I love the, that you come at it from a philosophical standpoint and it is interesting. I mean, I, I think, you know, I, I have a background in some of those things too, and you can't, you can't think about strategy of how you would, how you use the internet, especially how you engage with algorithms 
without sort of, you know, reverse engineering, okay, what would work with these things? And you start to ask those why questions and you start to have a philosophy of, uh, you know, working with ministries, which we've both done a philosophy of how you do ministry online. But then it, it, it's, it's interesting that you, you started thinking about, okay, but what is this? If, if I have to behave a certain way on here, there's certain things that are rewarded. There's certain things that are incentivized by these platforms what does that do to me? Cause it is changing your behavior. And I imagine I haven't read the book yet, but I imagine it's changing our thinking patterns too. Right? Yeah, totally. It's changing how we think it's changing what we value. And most of this, I should say the book is not all a browbeating about how social media is terrible. I never advocate for people to delete their accounts, you know, unless you find that you're like addicted to it in some way, or it's like, like severely affecting your mental health. I think there are times when like deleting accounts and logging off is the right answer. But I think sometimes we can get caught up in this idea that if we just like delete our accounts or, or whatever, that that'll solve the problem. And I just think that's wildly wrong for, for a few reasons, but yeah, I think like a lot of the way social media is changing us is short sighting us is making us assign value to things that we shouldn't be assigning value to. It's affecting how we view ourselves in ways that maybe we shouldn't be viewing ourselves and so I think the way I've put it before, and I was calling out Facebook specifically around when the Facebook papers came out in the fall of 2021, uh, I said this specifically about Facebook, and I think it applies, frankly, to a lot of other platforms as well. Like I said, when Facebook flourishes, its users do not flourish. Hmm. Uh, like, like what it means for Facebook to flourish hinders the flourishing of its users. It's like a parasitic relationship almost. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would have less of a problem with Facebook or other platforms. I was just calling them out at the time. And I do think they're one of the more egregious offenders in this way. I would have less of a problem with some of these platforms if when the platform made money, their users felt better about themselves and had a better outlook on the world. And even if even if some of that was like misguided, if it made people genuinely feel better and that made these platforms more money, I would feel like I'd be a little bit easier on them. But plenty have... Plenty of data has been published to show that Facebook makes the most money when its users are the most miserable. And like, mm -hmm. that's a problem. Like we should be asking deep questions about that and not just posting pictures of ourselves all the time without even thinking about it. Um, mm -hmm. And so really my biggest call throughout the book terms of service or through my writing on the newsletter is like, Hey, let's just stop and think like all I'm asking is that we don't uncritically embrace these platforms. I'm not saying log off. I'm not saying they're evil. I'm just saying, ask hard questions before you invite these things into your life and ask yourself primarily this question, is this app or platform serving me or am I serving it? And how do I know? And I think that's one of the most important questions we can ask because ostensibly these platforms were given to us as tools to serve us, to connect us with friends or family, to help us raise money for a cause, to entertain us. And I think a lot of us have honestly come to serve these platforms more than they serve us simply because we're not asking some hard questions. You talked about growing up with the internet. And I think you and I are probably a similar age but the internet kind of grew up with us too, right? Like it, it changed. I mean, right now people talk a lot about web 3.0 as, as things are changing and, you know, they used to talk about web 2.0 and web 1.0, but, 
how do you delineate that? Like you, you talk about the social internet, which, you know, is, it seems like that's broader than just social media. How do you, how do you think about the rise of the social aspect to the internet and how that in particular uh, changed the way that we engage with the internet? I debated not doing this in the book because I was unsure how people would respond, but the whole, I think almost all of part one of the book is kind of a history of the social internet. So it's like, how did we get from a bunch of government entities and universities communicating with each other through the earliest iteration of what we know as the internet to watching funny cat videos on YouTube? Like, how did we get here? Like, what's the, and I, I'm not an internet historian as much as I would love that gig because that sounds like fun. I do like, <laughs> I do love looking back and like studying how did we get here? And so I do like a very like, high view flyover in the first part of the book of how we got here. And if you aren't aware of the terms like web 1.0, which is, I think usually said until like the beginning, which is late eighties or early nineties until the late nineties, um, like 1998 or nine, I think is when they cut that off. Uh, that web 1.0 is like where you just consumed content from the internet. You weren't really adding anything. You weren't it's called the read era. You're not writing, you're just reading. Um, That's where like, you know, news websites would would post their news articles to the internet as well as in their newspapers or things like that. Then you had web 2.0, which is really the social age of the internet. And that's the age we live in today. Much, I think much longer, or it feels much longer than web 1.0 starting in roughly 1999 and going still to today. Um, that's where you not only read content from the internet, but you write content on the internet. So this is where, you know, you're not just hearing from other people, you're communicating back and forth. The internet becomes a two-way street. That's AOL, you know, the, the advent of AOL really exploded, made, made the internet broadly available and interesting and social for so many people. It was not the first, but it was the first to really get it right. And, and the reason, and frankly, the reason AOL won out over CompuServe and some of these other major platforms that existed at the time is because it put social first, um, which is super, super fascinating. It made like its chat rooms and ability to chat with friends through AOL Instant Messenger was really what sold people on it above some of the other platforms. There were other factors, but that was one of the biggest things. And so starting in the late 90s to today, we're in Web 2.0. And that's the social iteration. And further, we have Web 3.0, which we're kind of getting into. It depends on who you ask. Is like, is it coming or is it here? It's it's both. Like it's the now and the not yet. It's the inaugurated (laughs) Um, eschatology um, of internet phases. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And the whole point of Web 3, depending on who you ask, you might get five different answers. But the whole point is that it's kind of like Web 2.0. But instead of like two companies controlling everything and getting all the revenue, there's like shared ownership. So like imagine, and there are platforms like this that exist already on Web3, where instead of just posting to Facebook and your reward is personal expression and accruing likes and comments and shares, uh, and Facebook's reward is harvesting your attention and data for a profit, what if in the future of the web, every like you get, you get 50 cents and every comment that you get you get a dollar and every share on one of your pieces of content, you get $2 and you actually generate revenue in the company that social media platform, web 3.0 social media, they make less money because they're distributing a lot of the money out to the actual users who are creating content that that is very real. And in fact, I think one of the biggest, if I can like be 
uh, Nostradamus here and make a prediction for a moment. I think one of the biggest bridges into Web3 for a lot of people will be something like that. That and video games. Um, I think video games and a social media platform that pays more than just its top creators that like pays the common person, um, you know, five bucks because they like get because they got five likes on a piece of content. I think those will be some of the gateway drugs, if you will, to Web3 for a lot of people. But wrapped up in that is the blockchain and NFTs. If you've heard of those, all of that's Web3 web stuff. So where we're at is Web2. I think one of the biggest changes, like most consequential things that Web2 has wrought on us is that attention determines value, or, or at least we feel that it does. Um, I write in the book a bit about how we have this implicit belief that a lot of us have just ascribed to that if something goes val if something goes viral it's valuable like going viral for so many folks like i do a bit of consulting on social media strategy i have over the years and obviously i've worked in some christian organizations on social media strategy it's like everybody it's like going viral is how you win the game like that's how you win the social media game and i've often joked that like you win the social media game if you get on good morning america or the ellen degeneres show because if you go to like any of the, like the clip archives of shows like that, it'll be like, they'll have some serious or like hard story about something that happened in the world. And it'd be like, and then this dog Roscoe got lost from his family and take a look at this viral video and look at Roscoe being reunited with his family. We actually have Roscoe's family on the line right now. Hey, Roscoe's family, man, t tell us about this video that went viral. Isn't that crazy? Wow. Here's a $20,000 check from Shutterfly. I don't know why, just because they wanted to give money to you because you went viral. Wow. I mean, look at Chewbacca mom, nothing on her, a random woman who is sitting in a Kohl's parking lot, puts a Chewbacca mask on, gets like a huge book deal, gets like free college at some Christian college, all this stuff. Cause she had like a goofy video that went viral. It's anyway, we've had this entire like economy, attention economy that is built around that which gets more attention is more valuable. Attention really is the currency of the social internet. And I think one of the biggest effects on us, and I think largely for the negative, is that we have come to believe that the more attention something gets, the more valuable it is. Because in a literal sense, that's true. Like we've seen that play out. If things go viral, those people literally will accrue like monetary value or at least social value. Um, I mean, you see people like Charlie D'Amelio, like nothing against her, but like she just had some TikTok videos go viral because she's a really good dancer. And now like her family's kind of become like Kardashians 2.0. It's turned into real act, like attention turned into real actual value. Those are exceptions to the rule. But a lot of people, I think more people than would freely admit it, go into using social media with a sort of like, I hope that happens to me mm. idea. Mm -hmm. Or at the very least, our our determination of our self-worth is governed by the number of likes and comments and shares we receive. We maybe don't want to get famous, but we at least want to feel like we're cared for and, and well-liked. And so I think that's one of the biggest ways it's changed us, this particular iteration of the web. And who knows how Web3 will, will expound upon that. But where we're at right now, I think that's one of the most seismic ways. Yeah, it's interesting. I remember when MySpace, I remember even as like, a kid thinking how strange it was, the shamelessness there would be, it was usually 
you know, some of the, like the popular girls, they would say, I, you know, I forget what you did. You could like, or you could comment. I forget what, what the actions were there, but they would say, you know, do this, like my pictures and I'll like yours back. And they would just post things saying that it was very much like to what end, you know, cause then like there wasn't, you weren't going to get famous on MySpace the way it was set up, but it was very much as you're saying, the, the value of that affirmation was enough that like you would even artificially try to generate it for yourself, which is, it's just, it's just an interesting um, quirk of, of what drives us as people and what we, what we want. Yeah. It's super interesting. And it still continues to this day. Uh, and you have, you have um, like Instagram, I forget what they're called, like Instagram pods or something like that, where you like have these coalitions of like wannabe influencers who have all committed to like and share all of each other's content in order to float each other's stuff up. And it's really like frowned upon in a lot of industries for, for obvious reasons, because they're artificially inflating influence, but like it's worked for a lot of people. Like that's yeah. the thing. It's like yeah. what I've learned in talking with a handful of people throughout the years in various industries is a lot of the folks who are in power making decisions based on what they see on social media, don't know how to detect the fake stuff. Interesting. And it's been, kind of scary to me to see how many people are rewarded jobs or or other lucrative offers of various kinds based on totally faked influence on social mm -hmm. media which i think just further shows like there is actual tremendous monetary value in accruing the digital value the digital currency of attention and i think one of the biggest problems is people have come to see it as like actual actual value not just like monetary value but like how much attention i get determines how valuable i am as a person yeah i think one of the biggest appeals of of the social internet is we want to feel cared for and we want to feel valued but we're terrified of being truly known keller talks about this a little bit in meaning of marriage uh, i believe i can't cite the page but i know the theme of like being loved and being known. It's like all of us want to be loved, but a lot of us are afraid of being known, that vulnerability, that intimacy. Mm -hmm. And I think social media is just a perfect place where, perfect in a, in a bad way, where like we can endlessly chase the feeling of being cared for, the feeling of being loved and the feeling of being known without the vulnerability and the fear of people actually knowing us. Mm -hmm. Like, I, I think it's funny. I've talked to a lot of people recently, especially as the book is coming out, they'll be like, well, man, if social media is having such bad effects on us, like, why do people keep using it? And I'm like, hmm. because as, as bad of an effect as like, we maybe feel afterward, like a sort of like attention hangover or something like that. Like yeah. eventually in our heart of hearts, we like, know it isn't genuine and know it isn't actually valuable in the moment. The, the feeling of accruing likes or shares or just attention and whatever expression it takes that feeling is is like worth the bad feelings we maybe feel mm -hmm. in those quiet moments. Mm -hmm. It's it's like we're afraid of being truly known, so we'll settle for being artificially known rather than take the risk of being truly known. If yeah, it's sense. safer. It's not it's not the same. It's not the same, but it's safer. You get part of the high. That's right. Yeah. No, that that's well said. Now I know you, you've said and I, and from in your newsletter, I know you're not the anti-social media guy. So I'd be interested and, and you've used it for good. You've helped um, 
with Christian organizations kind of spread, spread their message. What are, I guess, the positives uh, for Christians specifically of the social internet? How can, how can we use it for good without getting sucked in and trapped by some of the, the bad? The whole part three of terms, the book, terms of service is kind of like some quick hit chapters. Like they're super short of just like, here's how to keep yourself rooted offline a little bit. Um, I, I do think that one of the, like one of my biggest concerns is something I, I think I mentioned at the beginning of our conversation that so much of the, so much of our world, like it used to be that what was online, like on the internet was derivative of what was, what was offline, like offline culture and offline life determined what you would see on the internet. Like the internet was a reflection of the offline world more and more. The internet is what's causing the reflection offline. Like the, the offline world is beginning to reflect the online world more and more where what we do on the internet is becoming our primary form of experience. And, and COVID only, like, I think this was inevitable. And I think COVID like in so many other ways just expedited this. I don't think we can blame COVID, but I do think we can say that it expedited the situation to where so much of offline culture is derivative and downstream of, of what's happening on the internet. Just see like songs blow up. It used to be songs blow up on the radio and then they would sell out on iTunes or something like that. Right. You know, in, in 2007, that's what would happen. Uh, today, song blows up on TikTok through a manufactured social media marketing campaign. And then streamer gets a billion streams or a, a musician gets a billion streams on, on Spotify or iTunes or whatever other music service because it, it, it that's downstream of the mm -hmm. social culture. Yeah. Um, and, and so I think that's kind of cool and kind of interesting in a lot of ways. Like it's, yeah. it's kind of like, I like looking at internet culture generally because it's so fascinating. Um, but it's also kind of terrifying that it is comedy special Bo Burnham and his comedy special inside, which I can't officially recommend because it's pretty vulgar, but I can under the table recommend because it's a great commentary of, the world in which we live right now. Uh, just know, know that I don't endorse a lot of the language and other things yeah. that he, that he, uh, I don't know if you've watched it, Reagan. I've but seen it. it yeah. And I, I loved it. It's incisive. Yeah. Oh my gosh. It is such a great commentary on where we're at as, as difficult as it is to watch and hear at times. He has a great line in that special in which he says, the non-digital world is merely a theatrical space in which one stages and records content for the much more real, much more vital digital space. And I think he's right. I think a lot of us have made our offline lives just stages where we create content for our online lives. All of that being said, I think that's all real. I think the way that we fight back against that, the way we use social media for good, the way we have a healthy relationship with social media is by not letting that happen. So by not letting our offline life just become raw material that we mine for online life, like don't design your entire wedding to be Instagram content, right? Don't go on vacation to a specific place because the content would be amazing. Like I've seen so many like pictures on social media recently of people who are like going to national parks or like iconic places in like New England and it's like literally these Instagram influencers or who, who want to be influencers just like standing in line for like hours waiting for one particular photo 
at this natural location in a national in a national park to get the content it's like it's yeah. like we're just doing it for the content you know not even so enjoying it i think <laughs> right and so i think like i think the way that you have a healthy one of the ways you have a healthy relationship with social media is don't let your offline life become subservient to your online life and i think we do that in a number of ways like by actually admiring creation for what it is like enjoy a sunset without making it an instagram story um i think it's studying history, like reading a book, whether digital or physical, I'm not here to judge either way. I do both, uh, read a book about what happened long ago, whether that's, you know, whether you want to read about, you know, uh, Roman history and and what things were like in Roman times, or you want to read about early American history or whatever you want to read, just read history and realize that like, not everything is new under this, that's under the sun. Um, I think it's building a real offline friendships and having coffee with people, I think it's uh, having accountability in place, like realizing that if we all have some sense of like sin nature or brokenness baked into who we are, recognizing that however we use social media is going to also be tainted by that. So we need Mm -hmm. some friends to kind of like have permission to call us out when they see us acting foolish on social media. Like, hey man, you really look like you were like fishing for compliments here, or you really look like you're just trying to get attention. Um, or get you know, like look like you were farming likes here rather than sharing like an authentic part of yourself. So having relationships where that can happen and, and giving people permission to do that for you. So I really think it just like it looks like not letting the online take over the offline and rooting yourself in some offline practices in order to prevent that from happening. Mm-hmm. I, I think it looks, I mean, like there are a hundred ways, you know, discipleship and all kinds of other real factors and and other manifestations that we could talk about. But generally speaking, I think um, having some offline measures in place. And also I should say, like, like you said, I think social media and the internet can be used for great, good podcasts like this. I mean, we're like, this is great. Um, I run a website called Bible to life, which is a ministry of Moody publishers. And the whole point of that is to take content that we've published and make it available to people who are searching for Christian resources on the internet who may never pick up a 200 page paperback book. Like we're as a Christian publisher, we're not under the impression that everyone who could ever be helped by what we publish is interested in reading a book. We get that. We're going to keep publishing books because we believe in the medium and we believe that people will keep reading and wanting to read books and for good reason. But we're also like, Hey, what if we could be an even better steward of the resources that we have, the gifts of our authors, and make some of these resources available to people who are Googling, why did Jesus have to die? Or is Jesus really the son of God? If we have books that address that topic and people are Googling for answers to that question being sent all kinds of places, why would we not make that content available in a way that's helpful for them? Even if we sell one or two fewer books because of it, that's worth it. Like that's a ministry gain for us, even if it's a bit, even if it ends up being a bit of a financial loss. Like that's so, so I'm really grateful in my day job to be working on a project that really coincides with what I'm interested in personally and, and trying to kind of like, how can we find some redemptive ways to use these medium, these, these media that uh, are often used for ill. You mentioned, um, you know, about like reading older books and things like that, or, or just kind of getting back into history. I don't remember who said it, but I remember someone, they were sharing a story where they were sitting in the back of a, a taxi cab and they 
with a bunch of friends, maybe it was an Uber or something, and they were looking around at the phone screens of their friends, and they had the the realization that 99% of the content or the information that we consume these days was created in the last 24 hours, which is an interesting thing to think about because uh, someone else, I'm butchering this, but I've heard someone else talk about like living in the endless now. There's like almost this temporal dilation where it's always present. And like, I know I'll see this myself, like even Google search results, you know, they, I, I only care about whatever I'm searching for. Was it made within the last month? What's the most recent, even when I'm looking at YouTube stuff and some of my favorite creators on there, I'm like, I don't care. That was a month ago, you know, or even that was a week ago. It's like, did you do something today? And that has to be doing something to us. And even our perception of time and what's important that only what just happened matters. And we'll just forget about everything else behind it. Do you, do you get into that at all in the book? Or have you thought of thought about that? I'd be interested in what you, what you think. I have thought about that. I don't know if I talk about kind of like, I, I guess what we put it is like recency bias or so like, you know, something mm-hmm. like that. I don't really get into that. That would be, a, I should have um, that. That's a topic that I think is very relevant. I think I'm, I'm currently reading. I know, I know I'm like a year late, but I'm finally reading Truman's the rise and triumph of the modern self, which is, <laughs> yeah very good and and very deep it's stretching my philosophical muscles that's for sure um but i think he gets into that a little bit where like like we have this uh, the part of our kind of modern cultural psyche is like that which is old is bad you yeah. see that with like like the colloquial like making fun of boomer talk you know like that mm-hmm. kind of thing um and so so yeah i think there is this sort of idea that the newer something is the better it is and i think like as one, and I'm talking just off the cuff here because I did not write on it. I think there's like, I, I understand that. Like I, mm-hmm. I see the, some validity to that um, because cer- certain things change so quickly. Like for instance, I have on my bookshelf, a book written by Stephen Levy about Facebook that was published. I want to say in like 2014, 2015 um, within the last 10 years, but not within the last five. I read like two chapters of that book and I was like, I'm not reading any more of this because I could go read like eight New York Times articles right now that would be way more relevant and appropriate to better understand the state of Facebook than read a 500 page book that was published in 2013 or 15 or whatever. Now, I still will probably go read that book at some point because it's valuable to like learn the history of Facebook and all of that. But it's like, there's so much changing in the now that it's almost just better to for certain subjects to pay attention to what's going on in the now. I think it just really does depend on the context of the particular situation. Yeah. I think you shouldn't necessarily, you shouldn't derive your values or ethics from the latest YouTube video. But if you're, you know, if you're like trying to keep up on a sports team or something like that, recency is maybe going to be more valuable than history and something that's older. So I think it probably just depends on context, but I do think it's a concerning trend that goes far beyond social media, but that social media, no doubt encourages. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Would you say like overall, would you say that you're optimistic or pessimistic about the future in regard to the internet with technology? I mean, even looking ahead at some of the the web three stuff that's, that's blossoming. um, Would you say that you're overall pessimistic or optimistic about the next five years? This is a really good question. And it's one that's been asked of me a few times recently. Um, it's hard for me to answer 
and feel totally okay with myself and how I answer because I don't feel wholly in one camp or the other. So I'll hedge a little bit. Um, I am more pessimistic than most, but I am kind of optimistic. So a lot of people, and I don't know how much, you, I know you and I have talked about Web3 stuff a little bit, but I don't know how much you've talked about it on this podcast. Yeah, a I've lot had of a, people, a couple people on to discuss it. So people listening, if they've been following the podcast, will have a, a primer. Did you, did you have Patrick on? Yeah. And Ian? Yeah, and Patrick Ian. And Ian? Uh -huh. That's yeah. right. Yeah, so they're great. Um, and, and we're in a group. We're, so you and I are part of this, this Discord server, the non-fungible Tolkien's. And uh, that started and still exists as a group text message that I'm in with those guys. And so we talk about this stuff pretty regularly. Um, and my general perspective is, like, I think a lot of what people think about the future of the internet feels very, like, positive and optimistic and like um what's the word like utopian it feels very utopian yeah uh, like everything like we're finally going to get this internet thing right like if we can <laughs> just get rid of those big bugaboo monster companies that eat everything alive google and facebook which i agree those companies definitely have their problems i'm as much of a critic as anybody in the christian space when it comes to facebook i bang that drum a lot uh I just don't have enough faith in humanity. Like the whole point is like web three gives the power to the people. And I'm like the same people who voted to name a boat, Bodie McBoatface like five years ago. Like <laughs> the, yeah. those are the people we're turning this whole state of the future of the internet over to like, really? Like I'm supposed to trust them with my investments in crypto, like Bodie McBoatface people, like people who hang out on 4chan all day. Like those are the people. Like yeah. those are my partners in the future of the internet. And I'm supposed to be happy about that. Like, I don't like Google and Facebook, but I'm not bought into Bodie McBoakface web 3.0 either. You know what I'm saying? If you don't know what I'm talking about, you have to go Google it. Um, but, um, but yeah, like I just don't, I don't trust the masses enough. Like right. I, I'm not optimistic enough about the, like, I think one of the biggest problems with web 2.0 is Zuckerberg and Jack Dorsey and others had too optimistic a view of people. Like I yeah. think, like so many of the content moderation problems they're having to go back and fix now. Well, not Jack now, because he got out of the game smartly. But like yeah, so seriously. many of the content mod so many of the content moderation issues that YouTube and Facebook in particular have faced are in part, I think, because they had too high a view of people mm -hmm. that they they didn't think people would possibly use their platforms for the terrible things that they've been using them for. Mm -hmm. And I get the same vibes from people who are talking about web three, like it's some sort of utopia where like, let's just give, like, we can't trust Google and Facebook, but like everybody in the future will own a portion of the internet and everybody will have a say. And I'm like, yeah, bro. Am I supposed to be encouraged by that? Like, I don't yeah. feel very encouraged by that. Um, and so I'm a little, I'm more pessimistic than some, um, but I am optimistic in that I don't know how much worse it can get from where we've been. Um, like, and the other reason I'm kind of optimistic is I was just on a podcast earlier today where um, I said this, and it's kind of, I think this might be kind of a hot take controversial, but I actually stand by it that, you know, a lot of people get on teenagers and how they misuse the internet and you know, like they're addicted to their phones, get teenagers looking at their screens. And like, I've worked in student ministry as a volunteer and a staff member for the last, since I was in student ministry, like since I was a freshman in college, like since 2010. 
I honestly think most teenagers have a better view of the internet than their parents do. Um, a lot of teenagers, I think, have a more sober, like, honest understanding of the internet, even if they use it foolishly. Like, they kind of get it more than their parents do. Like, I see parents caught up in a lot of, like, fake news, scammy kind of internet stuff than I do teenagers. Now, teenagers might be, like, sending questionable things to one another and, like, doing all kinds of questionable things on the internet. I'm not saying that they're, like, paragons of virtue when it comes to the internet. But I do think that a lot of teenagers today, even college students today, because they grew up with this stuff, get it a lot more than their parents do. And my hope is like the, where I'm super optimistic because like my parents, you know, didn't grow up with the internet and, but they had to parent me as I grew up with the internet. So Mm -hmm. we've never talked about it at length, but like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised if they felt a bit out of their depth in terms of like parenting a kid using the internet every day. Right. Like that would be understandable if they were like, yeah, we just let you do whatever. And we didn't really know like what was okay or not okay. Yeah. Or, you know, what, what, especially now with the, with the benefit of hindsight and like, you know, right, stuff right. they probably weren't aware of at the time. Yeah, exactly. And, but, but my, my optimism is that like when, you know, I grew up with this stuff as a kid. I'm a digital native in the in the like literal sense of the term. You as well, and and plenty of people who are like, like my hope is that people who are parenting toddlers and elementary schoolers today, as their kids get older and get to that like teenage stage. I mean, even, even as they're probably using social media now when they're seven, uh, but like when they're 13, 15 using social media in high school, feeling like they have to perform at school every day and then perform at home every day on social media when they get home. My hope is that the parents who grew up doing that are better at parenting their kids through that experience than the parents who had never experienced that Hmm. and had to figure out how to parent children going through that for the very first time. So I don't know that I'll be better at parenting a child using social media than my parents were. I think they did a fine job, but, but I, but I, what I'll have in the tool I'll have in my tool belt that my parents didn't have is that I've been there. Even if my, even if my kid, her name's Maggie, she, she won't be using her social media platform will be one that isn't even out yet. I'm sure. And it'll be different. Her experience will be different. The polls and the incentives and the temptations will all be different in some form than what, than what you and I experienced with Facebook and Instagram and all of that, there will be enough of a foundation, enough of a similarity that my hope is as, because like what we're experiencing is something that we've never experienced here where like we're the first generation to use this technology and we're getting to a state where hopefully the parent child relationship can be a little bit more wise to the context and a little bit more aware of what these platforms can do. Like the teenagers who suffer from depression because they base their value in Instagram likes today. Hopefully if they make it to parenthood, they'll be better at parenting their kids through those same feelings than their parents were with them because their parents had never done that before. Does that make sense? So like that's where I'm, that's where I'm really optimistic is I think that can be a really big improvement in a, in an area that has been, not that great. That's really good. Well, Chris, I, I really appreciate uh, you taking the time today and 
This has been a really fascinating conversation. I'm very much looking forward to the book. It's Terms of Service, The Real Cost of Social Media. It's out February 1st. And your newsletter, is it termsofservice.social? Is that how people find it? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And sometimes it, I, I've learned that it old school way, I guess this is kind of cool uh, or not cool, that if you just type in termsofservice.social, it may not go to the right site. So you have to do the www or just Google terms of service and it should come up. Well, yeah. maybe not. And, and terms of service, Chris Martin, and it'll come up. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll, uh, I'll uh, link to all of that in the description as well. Appreciate you, brother. I uh, hope to connect with you again soon. Keep up the good work. Thank you. Thanks for having me, man. And uh, I'm excited to have got to hang out and chat and excited to continue to talk about these things moving forward. I'll see you again here next week. But until I do, remember this. In whatever you do, do it well and do it all for the glory of God. For more productivity from a Christian worldview, check out my weekly newsletter, Reagan's Roundup. Every Thursday, I share an insight along with the five best links I found that week that I think will help you in your journey to becoming a more productive Christian. It's totally free. Just go to newsletter.redeemingproductivity.com to sign up for Reagan's Roundup. That's newsletter.redeemingproductivity.com.